Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fuglesang Podcast. Good evening. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on Sirius XM Progress. I'm Joe Sudbay. I'm with you again tonight, filling in for John Fuglesang. Always love this opportunity to join you. There are 12 days until November 8th. Almost 16 million Americans have already voted as we approach this incredibly important election. We are going to talk about elections tonight. We're going to dig in in just a few minutes with David Neer from Daily Coast Elections, the political director at Daily Coast knows as much about what's going on around the country as anyone. I am really excited to talk to David in just a few minutes and really get a sense of where things are and how things are playing out. We do know, we do know a couple of things from today. We know the U.S. economy grew at an annual rate of 2.6% in the third quarter. That's the first increase in 2022, and it's a Big turnaround. It shows the economy is moving. And Joe Biden, Joe Biden is out there touting this because he's out there fighting back against the idea that Republicans have any clue, any clue about what to do on the economy because they don't. They have no plan. Biden was up in Syracuse today. I want to just play a quick clip. Let's play Biden in Syracuse, then I'll talk a little bit more about it on the other side. Great economic report today. The GDP report. Things are looking good. This was things are looking good. That was him. He was on his way to Syracuse. And when he was there, he made this really important point. He said, even though my Republican friends in Congress seem to be hoping for a recession, the GDP results came out and the economy is, in fact, growing. And you do get the sense Republicans are cheering for a recession. And it's so interesting and it drives me crazy. And I talked about it last night and I'll probably mention it through the show. And I, and I saw Dan Frumkin, um, who writes Press Watch, tweet about this today. You know, you see all these reporters and all these cable news talking heads saying, well, the economy is a big issue for people and that's better for Republicans. Why? What is their plan? They don't have one. They they really don't have one. They 
They have some ideas of what they want to do that aren't going to help the economy. They're going to hurt the economy. Kevin McCarthy, who wants to be the speaker, the GOP minority leader right now, he said they're willing to take the debt limit, the debt ceiling hostage uh, and willing to prevent an increase in the debt limit so that they will get Biden to cave on their demands to cut Social Security and Medicare. They also intend to do tax cuts for billionaires. So last week, the Washington Post wrote this, and, and I found the paragraph because I, I, I just want to read this. This is, this is how the Republicans are thinking. Many economists say the GOP's plans to expand the tax cut flies against their promise to fight inflation and reduce the federal deficit, which have emerged as central themes of their 2022 midterm campaign rhetoric. Tax cuts boost inflation, just like new spending, because they increase economic demand and throw it out of balance with supply. But Republicans say they believe these efforts would put Biden in a political bind, requiring him to choose between vetoing the tax cuts giving the GOP an attack line in 2024 presidential election or allowing Republicans to win on one of their central legislative agenda items. It's not about doing anything for the country. It's about politics for them. That's the difference between Democrats and Republicans. It's really a huge difference as you're thinking about the economy, as your friends are thinking about the economy. And if anyone's telling you, well, the, I'm worried about the economy right now, so I might vote for Republicans. Ask them why the hell they would vote for Republicans. What is their plan? They want to cut your Social Security and Medicare. They're admitting it more than they ever have. It's part of the Republican senatorial campaign committee's plan to sunset every law, which means Social Security and Medicare. Ron Johnson says it up in Wisconsin. They're admitting it. That's going to be devastating for a lot of people <laughs> who've paid in for decades, right? And then their other big scheme is to tax cuts for billionaires again, even though it would increase inflation, which they say they're fighting against, but they're really not because they don't have a plan. This is... This is the thing that is driving me crazy about this election. And the media just kind of plays along and says, well, you know, uh, inflation's a problem. So Republicans are doing better. But the second part of that is what the hell are Republicans doing to make anything better? They're not. They're just not. <laughs> it's all a game for them. It's all a game at your expense, at our expense. And but who is winning in this climate right now who is winning well shell shell according to cnn will buy back four billion dollars worth of shares and increase its dividend by 15 percent after posing another gigantic quarterly profit thanks to strong oil and gas prices gigantic quarterly profit for shell gouging us using some of those profits of course to fund republican campaigns that's what corporate america does most, a lot of Democratic candidates won't take corporate PACs. Look at the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, the National Republican Campaign Committee. Look at their corporate PAC donors. A lot of the corporations that said they weren't going to donate to Republicans who uh, voted to overturn the election, they're doing it again. Judd Legum's been writing about this in Popular Info. Amazon, for example. Corporate America loves the Republicans and they love gouging us because they get away with it. And you know, right now, if you're a 
corporate America, you're thinking, gouge away. It increases inflation. People are paying more. They get pissed off at Democrats because they're in control and they'll vote for Republicans. Who wins? Not you, not us. Republicans, because <laughs> they're scamming the system. These are the things that we really have to call out in this election. And Joe Biden is doing it. And Joe Biden's doing it more. And I really think it's important to watch and listen to what he's been saying and calling out the fact that Republicans' only plan is to crash the economy. And I, you know, I mean, we can always want the media to do more. They won't. But we have to call it out. We have to call it out to our friends. We have to call it out to our relatives. We have to call it out to our neighbors who say they're going to vote for Republicans because of the economy. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? For what? It's this, this myth that they're better on the economy. We, uh, you know, Republicans ruin the economy and Democrats have to piece it back together. That's what happened after George W. Bush. That's what happened after George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton had to pull it back together. Barack Obama had to pull it back together after George W. Bush. Joe Biden's been trying to pull it back together after Trump did such a disastrous job on the economy and on the COVID debacle that he oversaw. I mean, can you imagine where we'd be? It's bad. It's been hard enough even having Biden as president. But can you imagine where we'd be with Trump in charge? These are the things that are on the ballot in addition to our rights. Abortion, obviously, which has become front and center again, thanks to politicians like Mehmet Oz, who the other night told us that local political leaders need to be in the room with women and their doctors as they're making very personal life decisions about their bodies. And Herschel Walker, another woman coming forward, he was campaigning with Lindsey Graham these past few days. Lindsey Graham, who's introduced a bill for a national abortion ban, is down campaigning with Herschel Walker, who now has had two credible women come forward and say they got abortions because of Herschel Walker. So, yeah, that issue's front and center as well. And last night, there was a debate in South Carolina, and the governor of South Carolina said he'd overturn marriage equality in his state. So that's on the ballot. This is all on the ballot. We all know it. We're all going to make sure that we stay in the fight these next few weeks. It is so critically important. We're going to take a break here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. Right before the break, I told you we're going to stay so engaged in these elections for these next 12 days, as we have been for so long. And Joining us right now to help unpack where we are and where we're going is probably one of the people who knows more about the playing field than anyone. It is always such an incredible pleasure for me to have the opportunity to speak with David Neer from Daily Coast Elections. David, welcome back to SiriusXM Progress. Joe, thanks again. I'm so glad you could join us tonight. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about. But to start, I I just have to start with these latest New York Times polls. I knew you wanted to talk about that. I'm dying to talk about that. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, so, you know, David and uh, his colleague, colleague David Beard have a podcast called The Down Ballot, and it's terrific. I actually hosted it um, last week, uh, a week before last, and it's just a great podcast. And I was listening to it today, and one of the things you talked about was the fact that we haven't seen a lot of public polling from house races. And that, you know, we see the generic polling, and we see disparities in generic polling. But tonight, the New York Times actually released four house polls. And they're all pretty good for Democrats. But I I read the New York Times article, and it says, a new series of house polls by the New York Times and Siena across four archetypical swing districts offer fresh evidence that Republicans are poised to retake Congress this fall. And I was like, wait a minute, what did I just read versus what am I seeing in the numbers? (laughs) Let's talk about this a little bit, David. So we got to start with the numbers because the numbers... Man, if you're a Democrat, you definitely take these. So I'm going to rattle them off. Kansas's third district, this is a seat in the Kansas City suburbs that Republicans tried to gerrymander to unseat Congresswoman Sharice Davids. She's leading her Republican opponent 55 to 41. It's a pretty surprising result, but certainly it fits in with other evidence that Davids is leading. Nevada's first district, this is a very swingy seat in the Las Vegas area. It used to be bluer. Democrats actually made it redder in order to make two neighboring districts, the third and the fourth, a little safer for the Democrats there. Congresswoman Dina Titus, the Democratic incumbent is tied with her Republican opponent, 47-47. New Mexico's 2nd District, this is a district that Democrats, a rare district that Democrats were able to gerrymander. And there, Gabe Vasquez, who is the Democrat, has a 48-47 edge on the Republican incumbent, Yvette Harrell. And Pennsylvania's 8th District, this is a Trump-leaning district, but again, held by a Democrat, Congressman Matt Cartwright, and he leads his Republican opponent 50 to 44. These are all the kinds of districts where you would expect Republicans to, you know, certainly in some of them be winning. I mean, like I said, they tried to make Kansas's third a gerrymandered seat for them to win, and they're losing. Pennsylvania's eighth. This is sort of Trumpy territory that's moved away from Democrats, and they're losing. Now, obviously, you know, some of these races are really close, but still, New Mexico's second. Democrats are up one there. That would be a flip, a flip in this environment if Democrats can actually manage it. Nevada's first. 
Obviously, those numbers are concerning. But, you know, Democrats, Nevada is one of the few places as public policy's polling, Tom, public policy polling's Tom Jensen told us, Nevada is one of the few places where Democrats actually tend to perform better than their polls. So, yeah, these are a really good set of numbers. And what you just read from the article introducing them, Joe, doesn't it sound like they wrote that piece before they got the data back? <laughs> That's exactly what it was. He, you, I, I, I read this and I, I looked at the numbers. I saw the numbers pop up on Twitter and I and I was all excited because these are good. And, you know, we've been looking for it again. It's polling and we're trying to be, you know, rational about polling. But we haven't seen a lot of house polls. I was very excited. Then I started reading the article and I was like, wait a minute, what? I had to look again. Like, did I miss something? Um but it just fit. And, and that's exactly your tweet. I retweeted you like you look like they wrote this before they got the numbers because it's but it's been part of this kind of cavalcade of news from the Times, the Post, others that, oh, this things are going so well for Republicans right now um, based on a lot of conflicting inf information. And David, let's just say for the record, you know, I have always believed this was going to be a more complicated uh, midterm than uh, historical precedent. But if we were going by historical precedent, the fact that Democrats are even competitive is the huge news. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't think that this is going to be a good year for Democrats. I think it would be a, a massive shock uh, if two weeks from now, Democrats actually turned in a good night. But there is a lot of contradictory evidence, as you say, and polls like this batch from The New York Times really suggest that Republicans aren't going to clean up. Now, they still could. Things could close late. These polls could be wrong. There could be other evidence, particularly private polls that we haven't seen that actually show a worse situation for Democrats. But again, it's a complicated picture. You know, Joe, for someone like you and, and someone like myself who's been around a while, we've been through some really rough elections for Democrats. And I, I, I'm thinking back in particular to both 2010 and 2014. And man, in 2010 especially, you knew that was coming from a mile away. There was no hiding from that. I, I spent 18 months dreading that election, and it turned out exactly as badly as I thought and then worse. This one, this is a weird one. Things are not going to plan for Republicans. Again, they could still win both houses of Congress, but this has been a very strange way to go about doing it. Well, and another kind of, you know, one of the things you mentioned about um, private polls, and that's polls that are conducted by the campaigns. Uh, we got a little insight into some private polls today um, from an unlikely source, and that was. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who was <laughs> uh, picked up on a high, hot mic today, um, saying that their polling was holding in Pennsylvania and things were looking better in Nevada. They're a little worried about Georgia. And I thought that was really illustrative. It wasn't certainly Chuck. Sch he was talking to Joe Biden when Biden was in Syracuse. It certainly wasn't the majority leader panicking today as he was talking to the president and giving him some kind of inside scoop. Yeah. And, you know, I always question this hot mic stuff. I mean, yeah, it's not like Schuber said something so salacious uh, or or shocking. Uh, you know, Chuck Schumer's a really, really 
uh, calculated guy. Uh, yeah. He probably plans every word that he says that comes out of his mouth well in advance. Uh, so even if this is was supposedly hot, Mike supposedly not for public consumption, um, you know, he's he's he he, he wasn't, uh, you know, in, in, in the president's private residence sharing the real sure, dirt. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, if there were if there were something like that, that he had to be really careful with, uh, he would have been more careful with it. So and, 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 and again, like you say, there was nothing surprising in what he said. Right. Uh, so, you know, I think what you see is what you get here. Right. Last night, um, uh, uh, David, I had um, Mario Yadidia on, who's the national field director for Unite Here, an organization that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the field right now door knocking. And we actually talked about Nevada uh, Culinary 226. They're local, um, just legendary for the work they do. And, you know, Mario made a point in this going back to that Nevada first district. He said there's going to be about oh, he, I think he said over 40 million dollars worth of TV on in Las Vegas markets in the next two weeks um, until Election Day. And it's just so overwhelming that it just kind of blurs everything out. And they're actually doing the door knocking. And that's a lot of how you get out the vote in Nevada. It's not necessarily a it's not TV. It's literally it's such a it's such a it's a difficult place to poll. Uh, as you mentioned, Democrats often end, end up doing better, but it really is um, kind of hand to hand combat out there and, and they're on the ground doing it. And that's happening all over the country right now. You know, one of the, I think, most compelling explanations for why Democrats underperformed in 2020. And I think there are a lot of reasons. Elections are always complex beasts. But one reason that I definitely think has a lot of merit is that because of the coronavirus pandemic, Democratic campaigns largely stopped door knocking because they weren't mm -hmm. taking the pandemic seriously. And also, this was a time when we understood far less about its transmissibility. Of course, the vaccines had not been rolled out yet, and Democrats were wisely playing it safe. And Republicans were like, you know, eh, screw this. You know, they were generally taking the DeSantis view, and they mostly kept door knocking. And in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, it very probably would have been safe to continue most door knocking activities. And the fact that Democrats were not on the doors very likely contributed to that Democratic underperformance. Door knocking campaigns are really expensive to run. They're difficult to run. They're exhausting. They're frustrating. They're tiring. You know, obviously, a huge reason why campaigns rely so heavily on TV is because you can reach a lot of people at once and do so very easily. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the most effective way. I still think you have to advertise on TV. You can't go dark. But yep. you also have to be reaching voters directly, especially in these super close races, which we often see in Nevada. And certainly in the last several years, uh, the culinary union has uh, just turned it into an art form, really the best of breed probably in the country. Um, so th th that is definitely, uh, uh, they've definitely been a key reason why Democrats seem to uh, keep landing on their feet every single time in Nevada for the last several cycles. Knock wood that it will happen again. Absolutely. So um, when, I, when I mentioned the money being spent in, in Nevada, obviously there are competitive House races, competitive Senate race, competitive governor's race. You and your colleagues at Daily Coast Elections actually track the spending by the campaigns, but also by the kind of the 
let's call them the big four, the political committees of the House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans. And that's really an indicator of where the competitive races are, because they actually see these private polls. Talk a little bit about what you you have been seeing in uh, in, in, in that. What are some of the places where the money's being spent and the numbers and and who's doing what? Sure. So the groups that we track closely on the House side of things are the DCCC and their super PAC counterpart, the House Majority PAC. And then for Republicans, the NRCC and their super PAC counterpart, which is the Congressional Leadership Fund. And these groups spend by far the most money on House races. Uh, collectively, this was at the start of the week. They had already spent over $300 million on the House battlefield for the general election. That number is definitely higher by now. But maybe the most interesting thing is that most of the races where money is being spent by the the big four, as you put it, are Democratic held seats. And that's exactly what you would expect in a midterm year. But there are a number of Republican held seats that are on the board, including a bunch that Republicans have been spending to defend in. And what we haven't seen is the playing field open up so widely that Republicans are suddenly spending in districts that really shouldn't be in play at all. They there 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 are again there are plenty of threatened Democratic seats, but the threatened seats are pretty much all the obvious ones. You know there were a couple of reports today in Politico and the Washington Post about some supposedly secret polls in California's 26th district and New York's 25th district. These are two seats that Joe Biden won by 20 points. And those are the kinds of seats where if you saw Republicans making a real play for them, then wow, okay, you start to get really worried. But despite reports of Democrats seeing polls that they don't like in those districts, Republicans haven't shown up with the big money there yet. They still could. There's still time. So I'm not saying don't I'm not saying we 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 don't have to worry about anything. Certainly not. But again, the playing field is about what you'd expect. Republicans could still win a whole bunch of seats and easily retake the House. But so far, we just haven't seen anything unexpected. Yeah, I think that's really important. And you know, it's really interesting too. <laughs> One of the things that drives me crazy is how quickly so many democratic anonymous democratic strategists will whine to politico oh, and the washington post even start i right i mean i mean it, my 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 colleague jeff singer says that democratic operatives seem to treat reporters as their therapists seriously get a real therapist these people are not your friends if you are worried and up at night because of some polling you saw or because you just are disposed to fretting, go actually go into therapy. Really, it's good. It's healthy. Everyone should do it. Reporters are not your therapists. We don't want to hear your spew. No, and what you get from Republicans is they they will boast about anything and 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 they give the impression that they're going to win. It's this it's such a contrast and it drives me crazy. It has driven me crazy for years, and I agree with Jeff. They a bunch of them need therapy, and maybe get out of the business if it's if it's this stressful for you. If you think you have to do this, um, let's let's just go uh, across the country a little bit, um, David, um, in some of the places that 
you know, some of the hot spots. Obviously, the Pennsylvania Senate race, it's tightened. Uh, there was a debate the other night, um, uh, you know, and obviously people had different takeaways. Uh, to me, I just thought it was a stunning takeaway that Mehmet Oz actually said he thought the decision about abortion should be, t- be between a woman, her doctor, and local political leaders. I, I just found that so shocking. But what, what's your sense of the Pennsylvania race right now? Local political leaders. I mean, I feel like Twitter had such a field day with, with, with this oh one. You God. know, who, who comes into the doctor's office with you? The mayor, you know, the, the city council president. Uh, you know, you, t- you talk about the race tightening and I want to emphasize something that that I think is really important. When people look at polls, they so often tend to focus only on the margins without really internalizing what the top lines mean. And when I say top lines, I mean the actual share of the vote that each candidate is getting at that moment in time. And when you see a poll, for instance, let's say from over the summer that might have had, this is just hypothetical, Fetterman up over Oz 47 to 40. Oh, wow. He's up seven points. That's a great lead. Sure. That is a great lead. But the fact of the matter is no Republican in Pennsylvania in a midterm year like this in a swing state is going to wind up with 40 percent of the vote at the end of the day. You have to look at the undecideds and understand why he's only at 40% of the vote. And the answer is there are a lot of Republicans, and this happens all the time, especially on the Republican side, who feel icky about their nominee. They don't particularly like the guy, but to cite the great Tom Jensen again, when it comes to undecided voters, you can always count on Republicans to do the wrong thing in the end. And (laughs) what he meant by that is these undecided voters who are squishy on the Republican nominees are going to come home in the end. Maybe in August, they're saying they're not sure. But by September, October, November, they are sure because they remember who the demon commie socialists are. And they know that, you know, they might not like Oz. They might think he's some schmuck from Jersey. But hey, at least he's not a Democrat. And so when things have closed, because when, when we talk about the race tightening, what it is, is these undecideds, for the most part, coming home. It's not so much Fetterman slipping and losing support. There may be a little bit of that, but most of it is just Republicans coming home. And this is something to be expected. I think it's something that uh, much of the media does a, a poor job of explaining a lot of the time, but it's uh, a natural phenomenon. There was no way, again, that Uh, Fetterman was going to win 60-40. That just doesn't happen in a state like Pennsylvania, barring exceptional circumstances or a big wave year, which this is not going to be. So I am definitely, you know, uh, I I feel like Pennsylvania is pretty close to a toss-up. Oz can definitely win. Uh, That's unfortunate, but that's reality. Uh, But I'm not surprised to see where where things have wound up. I'm just disappointed that uh, it's been met with such consternation when, again, this is just the the natural way of things. Oh, my God. I've been doing politics for a long time. And one of the truisms of all truisms of politics, Republicans always come home. They just always do. I knew that when I was in my 20s. I'm in my 60s now. And, and, And to see... You know, national political reporters act like it's surprising has just been so maddening to um, to, to watch. It's it's really it's really phenomenal. Um, 
you know the other the other um uh, race obviously and and this is this is something about um there's something about Pennsylvania and then I want to get to Georgia but Pennsylvania we might not know on election night and there's some new reporting today that reinforces that let's just talk about that for a minute david because i think it's really important for people to understand yeah so republicans control the legislature in pennsylvania and they have deliberately refused to change the state's election laws to allow clerks to start processing and counting early ballots so early votes and mail ballots before election day and as a result this means that votes can only start being tabulated once the polls are closed on election night and that creates a huge backlog and it will take days before in all likelihood before we know a winner in a close race we certainly saw that happen in 2020 with the presidential election Mm -hmm. this is a deliberate strategy by republicans to muddy the waters because what happened in 2020 we saw trump had the lead on election night and then over time it got whittled away and the reason why is because trump has poisoned republicans against voting early and voting by mail so early voting which actually used to be a technique preferred by republicans is now overwhelmingly chosen by democrats and republicans mostly vote on election day but the earlier the votes are cast in most states including pennsylvania the later they get counted because the election day votes typically get counted first so This is this red mirage that people have talked about, and Republicans love it. Cynical Republicans love it because they get to pretend like something wrong is afoot, that there's a conspiracy going on, that Democrats are simply finding blue votes and adding them to the pile day after day after the election goes on. And it's uh, a load of BS, and it's exactly what they want. And Pennsylvania is just about the worst actor in uh, this state of affairs. Wisconsin's also a problem. Michigan could be a problem as well. Um, and uh, like you said, we 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 just might not know the results. In fact, I think there's a good chance we won't know the results on election night. In fact, Democrats, you don't want to know the results in Pennsylvania on election night, almost certainly, because the odds of a Democratic blowout are quite low. If there's a Democratic blowout, I'd be so happy to be wrong. But yeah. if I'm right and it's a close race, then we almost certainly won't know that Fetterman is the winner until sometime after election night. Right, right. And um, yeah, I think that's really important. And we're going to see, you know, Trump's already stirring the pot there and because that's what they do. Um, And it's just it's well, that's that's a whole other subject, too. But let's just talk about Georgia. That's the other Senate race I want to talk about. Um, You know, we've seen such controversy around Herschel Walker these past few weeks. Again, yesterday, another woman coming forward about how he um, (laughs) he got her to have an abortion. And he's campaigning today with Lindsey Graham, who is pushing a national abortion ban. Uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock has been up in the polls. Uh, This is a state, though, David, that you have to get to 50 percent. So what are we seeing down in Georgia? Yeah, you know, the, the the one Schumer remark that I, I have to be honest uh, felt concerning to me was his his worry about slippage in Georgia. 
and and man would that suck to to, to lose that senate yeah. race for a, a million reasons not least of which is that warnock is just such a fantastic senator and, and his amazing, win in, yep. in 2021 was uh, amazing and uh but to, to to get back to your point uh the, the reason why of course warnock's win and john ossoff's uh, at the same time didn't happen until 2021 was because if you do not eclipse 50 percent in a statewide race in georgia then you go to a runoff and Republicans actually changed the date of that runoff. Uh, two years ago, it took place in January. Uh, if there is one this year, it would take place in December. Warnock actually started running ads this week, pretty entertaining ads. His ads are, are, are generally pretty great, saying, uh, uh, exhorting people to uh, get him over the 50% mark, saying he didn't want to ruin Thanksgiving again with another runoff. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, God willing, um, he will get past that mark. But, you know, if he doesn't and there's another runoff, man, I mean, that one is just going to be completely, completely wild, especially because, Joe, we could just like in 2020 slash 21 find ourselves in a situation where control of the Senate hinges on Georgia again. And man, could you imagine? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've often said, David, like, I feel like the last time I was happy was when I woke up on January 6th for those three hours before oh, the assault God. on the Capitol. Oh, we no. woke up and we were like, it was, sheer, well, November 7th when Biden won, and we all celebrated. And then again, those three or four hours on January 6th. Um, <laughs> those were happy times. We've had so few of them. Um David, I, I could talk to you all night, and uh, obviously I would love that, but I know uh, it's been a long day for you already. Um, you're on Twitter at David Neer, uh, The Down Ballot, a terrific, terrific podcast, Daily Coast Elections. You should be signing up for the Morning um, Digest, which is terrific. But before I let you go, what are the things you're looking out for over these next 12 days? What are the things that you and your colleagues are going to are going to be focused on and that we should be paying attention to. So I think it's really important to stress that such a large proportion of the vote these days is cast before election day. I think it's likely to be more than half, maybe well more than half. So it becomes harder and harder for anything to actually change the direction of the ship the closer we get to election day. So there really is not much time left for any last minute surprises to affect the trajectory of the election. And I think that's really important to remember. And also, when you look at a poll these days uh, in many, many states, uh, especially any that offer early voting or those that offer uh, excuse free absentee voting, mail voting, uh, many people who are responding to these polls have already voted. So the mm -hmm. votes are locked in the bank. And that is just something very important to keep in mind. Uh, it's it's a very different world uh, than it was just uh, even a few years ago, but certainly a, a decade or two ago. So uh, just bear that in mind uh, as, as, as you see anything that happens. Surprises are just less likely to have an impact 
the major thing that we're keeping an eye on, again, like I was referencing before, is this spending from these major groups. You know, they are by no means infallible. I, I really want to emphasize that, that even these big groups like the DCCC or the NRCC, their polling can be wrong. In fact, in 2020, both sides uh, had polling that uh, was overly optimistic for Democrats. Even Republicans' polls were showing the same things that Democrats' polls were. But their spending does at least indicate what they think the competitive races are. So if we see spending from the major, major groups late in the day in new races, that suggests that they're actually seeing something that they are concerned about or alternately excited about. And we keep very close track of that in our newsletter that you just mentioned. You can sign up at dailycoast.com slash morning digest. Uh, we also talk about this stuff on our podcast that you graciously mentioned, the down ballot. We're on Apple Podcasts, all podcast platforms. Just type our name in and you'll find us. It's really terrific information. And uh, I know it is what I eat my oatmeal every morning, drink my coffee and read the morning digest. It arrives around 8 a.m. And uh, it's just incredibly important. Anyways, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, keep up your great work. And um, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll talk to you soon, David Neer. Thanks again, Joe. Take care. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes and we will get right on the phones. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. I'm Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John tonight. And um, we've been talking a lot about politics tonight, obviously the campaign season in full gear. And one of the things that's really happened this year, um, NPR did an article about it this week, is um, the use of fentanyl. Fentanyl, the drug fentanyl in campaign ads. Um, and Republicans are using it to attack Democrats. And there really is a crisis with fentanyl, but it's not what Republicans say it is. And joining us to help unpack this is someone who has written about the drug wars in America, a political historian, an author, Kathleen Friedel. Kathleen, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to talk with you. Well, it's always great to talk to you. And this issue of fentanyl, and one of the things we've seen recently is um, uh, Republicans telling us that fentanyl is going to appear in Halloween candy, and you see it in their ads. And it is, it, I just feel like they do such a horrible disservice to this really important issue. So first of all, just explain to folks, and I think many people understand, explain the fentanyl issue right now. What What is going on with fentanyl? Okay, so we have a broad class of drugs called opioids. And what these drugs do is act upon the opioid receptors in our body. 
And for hundreds of years, um, these drugs were derived from opium and opium gum. But in the modern era, we've developed the ability to develop an entirely synthetic um, opioid, not even heroin is an entire entirely synthetic opioid. It's not made in a lab, it starts with an opium poppy. But fentanyl is made entirely in a lab. So all you need to make it is some very crude lab equipment and some precursor drugs. In other words, the drugs that it, the molecules it takes to make the fentanyl. And in fact, there are many analogs by which I mean there is a lot of closely related drugs that can be substituted somewhere in the chain and you get the same effect. It still acts on the opioid receptor, but you've just somehow evaded the latest law or prohibition that popped up. And so this distinction actually winds up being hugely important. And I mean this distinction between a naturally derived opiate and a synthetic one, because all you need are these pre precursor drugs, and they're very cheap. And you can have a small lab. The Wall Street Journal last month did an investigation into the labs popping up in Mexico now developing fentanyl. And to call them a lab, you know, the visual that pops up in most people's mind in most people's minds would not fit the picture of what the Wall Street Journal showed. It's like some drugs in a shack that as soon as any kind of enforcement approaches, assuming that enforcement is, you know, actually hostile to the lab, which is not a safe assumption, that lab can just be abandoned, shut down. Nobody cares. It's not a huge capital investment. So to produce a kilogram of heroin costs a producer maybe $6,000. This is the Wall Street Journal. For the same effect to be achieved with fentanyl, a producer only has to spend $200. So what we've seen is just a massive proliferation of these very small kind of mom and pop labs all across largely the Sinaloa state run by the Sinaloa cartel. There's a couple of competing cartels, but the Sinaloa is the main one. And they get their precursor drugs from China and they fight with other cartels over the drugs at the ports of entry in Mexico. And then they take them to their labs and they develop them. And then they send them, they press them into pills and send them across the border. And the way in which they do that is they plant them on U.S. citizens, largely, and they send them overwhelmingly across legal points of entry. And to listen to Republicans, you would never know that, right? I mean, you would think that um, some, some desperate person scaling a wall somewhere in Arizona is carrying a bag full of fentanyl, and that's just not the case at all. That's a really important point, because that is exactly what um, uh, uh, Republicans intimate. And it's something, you know, I work on the immigration issue and the uh, organization I work for, America's Voice, actually tracks Republican ads. And it's like they want you to think that people fleeing violence in Central America are also somehow drug mules. And, and it's not. It's not. And um, because. The product is too valuable for them. It's a moneymaker. That is a risky proposition. These these cartels. It's really interesting, Kathleen, and I've learned so much from you and um, and uh, actually um, Sam Quinones, who wrote the book oh, yes. Dreamland, yeah. and he recently had an op-ed in the L.A. Times that yeah. you actually referred me to, um, and it, it was just it's it just 
you, 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 what, what it does is the way the Republicans politicize this issue um, doesn't deal with the source and doesn't deal with the addiction problem in America. No, it, it, no, not even close. And and two things before we even broach that subject, which, you know, that's that's the elephant in the room, what you just raised. But one thing is, let me just put some numbers behind what a risky proposition it would be to put some drugs, any drugs, let alone fentanyl, on illegal crossings. By the Customs and Border Patrol's own estimates, they interdict, meaning like they actually catch and intercept about 83% of the people crossing the border illegally. And by their own estimates, they interdict. So they actually, when they ran the study on this, they actually used cocaine, which is, you know, obviously a hugely trafficked drug into the United States, dwarfs even fentanyl. And they intercept at legal points of entry, which is how it enters, less than 2% of the cocaine coming into the United States. If you're a cartel, why would you put some drugs on a person crossing illegally? Why would you do that? You have you stand a great chance of interdiction there. And of course, everyone interdicted is searched and so forth. Why wouldn't you put it on a U.S. citizen who faces a lower barrier of entry, most often is not searched, crossing at a legal of port of entry. That's exactly what you would do. And that's exactly what they are doing. So I think that that, you know, that needs to be underscored that the drugs are coming in via U.S. citizens at legal points of entry. What is less commonly talked about is that during the pandemic, when the United States imposed a ban on asylum seekers and limited the numbers of legal crossings at the border, the UN has actually gone back and estimated that actually that decision drove the shift in favor of fentanyl. So the logic there is if you only have, you know, X number of people crossing the border, you want to get as much of a drug across the border as possible for as big as impact as possible, if that makes sense. And so from the cartel's perspective, provided you don't care about how many people you kill, and they certainly don't, it makes it it's more efficient, if you will, to smuggle fentanyl across the border. So actually, this kind of treatment of the border as the place to solve the drug problem can actually drive the incentives in exactly the wrong direction. Jesus, it's 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 so bad the, the way they politicize it. And what, what's interesting, too, is uh, uh, they're all trying to blame Biden, blame Biden, blame Biden. But I, I remember I saw an article um, not too long ago where the uh, Senator Haggerty from Tennessee, who was the uh, ambassador to Japan, was in a meeting with Donald Trump when he was talking to President Xi of China. And um, he made he made really a major concession. Um, uh, She agreed to stop sending shipments of fentanyl to the United States. But Haggerty actually said she never agreed to stop sending it to Mexico. That he actually told that to The Washington Times, which is kind of a big tell. And the question is, did Trump not know or you know, right, that exactly. seems like really important. Right. And it just shows the international 
um, level of engagement on this issue because she knows he's sending fentanyl to Mexico and Donald Trump didn't ask him to stop it. Right. No, I mean, this the the degree of non-comprehension of Donald Trump on any number of issues. I mean, we'd be here all night. But I think I think it is important what you're noting in that. When fentanyl first appeared in the United States, there was a lot of attention paid to traffic via the U.S. mail. Um, And, you know, that did happen. But even back then, um, it, you know, paled in comparison to that which could be leveraged and trafficked off of the cartel network. You know, the cartel network, it's kind of like you know, a mom and pop store going up against Walmart. You know what I'm saying? So these cartels are ruthlessly efficient businesses. And I and I mean that they are ruthless. The shift to fentanyl. I mean, you have to think about it, Joe. This is a drug trafficking, you know, organization, set of organizations where part of their business model involves not caring how many people they kill. There's absolutely no quality control going on in the labs that they have right now. And so there's a lot of fentanyl that's being compounded into other drugs, cocaine, methamphetamines, to either amplify the effect of those drugs or to somehow mitigate the come down. And, you know, because there's no quality control, you could just be stuck with a bad pill. And we see all kinds. I'm sure you saw, Joe, maybe I even sent it to you, that recently in New York, three different people who ordered cocaine from the same kind of texting retail service, if you can believe that exists, and it does, three of them or who ordered it from the same person overdosed and died from fentanyl. They just have a bad batch. And the, the drug cartels, they don't care. And so... This is a problem that has to be approached with at least a kind of steely-eyed efficiency. You know, we'll never be able to match the cartels and ruthlessness, but we should look to match them in terms of analytical um, prowess. And I think the first thing we have to look at, and you mentioned it, Joe, is the demand side. And there's all kinds of interventions that we can do on the demand side, primary, secondary, tertiary. I know I always get into this with you and it's so technical and here we are and it's like past 10 p.m. But truly, this is how we should think about it. Primary prevention is, you know, primary interventions are prevention. You know, how do we get people to never take this in the first place? Secondary are early interdiction and tertiary is just basically harm reduction. And for whatever reason, Joe, and I really don't understand it, but most of our conversation centers on tertiary, you know, harm reduction, because that's where the controversy is. It's like needle exchange, safe consumption sites, but secondary interventions or early detection, honestly, You could be doing a lot of good there and no one talks about it. Nobody talks about how primary doctors should be screening for substance use disorders, you know, during their physicals and stuff like that. We could be doing tremendous things to that are more effective and cheaper. And we really haven't given it, you know, that steely eyed analytical view that the cartels adopt when they look at how to push these drugs. Well, I think part of it, too, is there's such a stigma associated with drug use. And it's just such it's bullshit. It, it, you know, so many people have used drugs uh, recreationally. I mean, we're starting to see a destigmatization of marijuana. Finally, I mean, even Joe Biden, which was shocking to me because I, I didn't expect it from him a couple 
um, uh, weeks ago when he took his action on marijuana. But um, and also along these lines, a couple of weeks ago, I when I was guest hosting for John, I had on Beth Macy, who wrote the book Dope mm-hmm. Sick, and I. So many people learned about the. Uh, you know, the problems with opioids, uh, opioid addiction through um, her series when it became on Hulu. And she's got a new book called Raising Lazarus, Hope, mm-hmm. Justice and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis, where she talks about the tertiary care primarily. Yeah, she and focuses on tertiary care. Yeah. And, you know, I don't blame her because obviously there yeah. we have, you know, you have to do something. And, and I, as you know, Joe, I've taken many stands, including against Trump's, you know, deputy attorney general when he published an op-ed in the New York Times about um, harm reduction and what it does. But, you know, I, I, I criticize the drug reformers, including Beth Macy here, on on focusing too much on the tertiary yeah. and not enough on the primary and the secondary, not enough on the prevention. And by the way, the primary, secondary and tertiary, that uh, that applies to the supply side as well. And I think what we now have to come to admit um, as a country is that the word prohibition in the phrase drug prohibition really means profit. And we've driven these incentives in exactly the wrong direction. I think we need a new approach to reducing supply, to getting supply to be less dangerous than it is. So not just reducing the amounts coming across the border, but you know, getting the fentanyl out of our drugs. And I think we should do that by looking to trade agreements to ask Mexico to achieve, you know, certain kinds of reductions, however it wants to achieve them. It's their country. Um, In the same way that we look at other countries and ask them to achieve other things in trade agreements, including emissions reductions, so on and so forth. You know, drugs are a trade and the trade agreements themselves tremendously propel the drug trade. Nothing, nothing has helped Mexican cartels more than NAFTA. I promise you that agreement. And I'm not saying we should repeal NAFTA tomorrow. I'm saying the kind of drugs that we're seeing in these in this country today is a direct consequence of NAFTA. So why wouldn't we look at drug drug? Excuse me. Why wouldn't we look at trade agreements to try to solve this drug problem? So, you know, Again, we have to step back and be as coldly analytical as the cartels are, because what we're doing now is just not working at all. Well, it's really it's it's depressing. And and, and, and part of the problem with it is, of course, this politicization that um, tries to uh, treat this issue um, as a way to attack Joe Biden as and instead of finding oh, yeah. solutions on either side, the supply or the demand. And it's 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 really exactly. And, exactly. And, um, you know, exactly. I, Joe. I, you know, you just I think I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think you right. just nailed it in the sense that, you know, this using this as a political issue induces this kind of policy paralysis where we're afraid to ask the difficult questions that will get us to the real solutions. Kathleen Friedel, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you on Twitter at kfriedel, K-F-R-Y-D-L. I always learn when we talk and I know our audience appreciates it too. So thank you for joining us tonight, staying up late to help us unpack fentanyl and fascism. Uh, just an ugly combination, <laughs> but, but, but you, make it, you make it understandable for us. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Joe. It's great to talk with you. All right. We're going to take a break here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in just a few minutes. 
Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. I do want to get on the phones because I know we have some callers waiting. You know our numbers, 866-997-4748. So much to discuss tonight. Stephen in Kentucky. Stephen, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. How are you tonight? Good. I'm good. We haven't talked for a while. What's going on? Well, I was calling. I was sort of. Insp- I want to comment on what you were just mentioning before the break, too. But I felt inspired to call in tonight because of some of the criticism that Lieutenant Governor Fetterman has been receiving after having the courage to go through with the debate. <laughs> after we had how many people that were bitching and complaining about Katie, what's her name out in Arizona that wouldn't debate that fruitcake? that she's running against out there, but yet Mr. Fetterman actually does it, and then they bitch and complain about that. It's like damned if you do, damned if you don't syndrome, it seems like today. Um, I wrote something actually on my Facebook page that kind of captures the moment, and I wanted to share it with you, Joe, and your audience tonight. I wrote, note to politicos, who in the hell are you to lampoon those who have survived maladies? or are currently doing the best they can to venture on the road to recovery. This has nothing to do with anti-establishmentarian sentiment, but rather exposes all the little half-baked fruitcakes just in time for the holiday season. How would you like it if the shoe were on the other foot and someone dared victimize you for a bout of illness? At least Lieutenant, the Lieutenant Governor sought help for his problem. What exactly is Dr. Oz's excuse again? Furthermore, as long as we are on the subject, where did Mehmet Oz receive his professional training? The Dr. Jack Kevorkian School of Medicine, perhaps? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of wondering because I have never seen someone who claims to be a physician revel in someone's debilitating condition. I I can't understand that. I lost my father four years ago to to that condition. And I had quite a few things to say to Dr. Oz. I said, you know, first of all, sir, I prefer the Wizard of Oz to Dr. Oz. And I said, too bad that the Wizard of Oz can't bring you a heart and soul for Christmas because that's exactly what you seem to need. And furthermore, in terms of this stuff you were just talking about a moment ago, I don't feel sorry for Judge Alito. You want sympathy from me, sir? Look under the dictionary between shit and syphilis. That's where you'll find my sympathy right now for you. Because the fact is, you want to talk about a grave betrayal? You all are so focused on the leak itself, but you're not focused on what the leak was saying. The fact that these people had been scheming for over 40 years to overturn this. And you got what you wanted, you did. And now that you... You know what? I just can't understand with all this, Joe, to be perfectly frank. I don't understand. What did they think? Did they think like Bush when uh, in 2002 when he said, oh, the, all the people overseas would be hailing us as liberators when we come mm-hmm. to save them? It Was this the mentality? Did they really think that everybody in this country, when you look at the polls of people that support a legal right, and I don't give a damn if people support abortion or whether they are against it. The point is nobody likes abortion. I don't know of anybody that likes it, but you know what? If you are going to take away contraception 
You're not going to have liberal sex education. Quite frankly, I don't know why it is in our country we don't have liberal sex education. What I mean by that is going beyond penis and vagina and actually educating. I would start saying around 14, 15, 16 years old. Why? What is? What on earth is so bad about telling these adolescents that sex should be fun and exciting? Why not introduce dessert toppings to these people? Let them know that it's fun. It is fun and it's thrilling, but at the same time, you temper that with telling them how to take responsibility for themselves, you know, and for, the, for themselves and their partner. You know, in other words, teaching them self-respect along. So what you're doing is it's a balance of spirituality and sensuality. That's what faith is supposed to be about. And all these people who sit there and deny themselves pleasure... <laughs> You know, you can deny yourself pleasure all you want to, but you know what? You deny yourself pleasure, you're denying yourself happiness. And you're denying yourself health and wealth and wisdom and all those other wonderful things, too. So if you want to go ahead and do that, you go right ahead and be a martyr and do that. But at the same time... I don't think they want to deny themselves. They want to deny the rest of us. They're having their fun, Stephen. Obviously, dear, they are denying themselves. If they had a sex life of their own, they wouldn't be so focused on trying to restrict (laughs) everyone else's sex life. I mean, Clarence Thomas was very honest about something. If Clarence Thomas had something going on in his own bedroom right now, you know, I guess guess being married to a domestic terrorist probably puts a cramp in in that step. But there again, Mr. (laughs) Thomas is not not perfect himself. I mean, he, he has a fascination, we all know, with his sick fascination with Coke cans at Long John Silver's restaurant, you know. A pubic oh, my goodness. You we all bring know, it all we back, Steve. Got to do it. We all know Could've. about those picadillos. I mean, yes, God knows what else he has in his in his skeleton full of closets. I mean, hell, we we yeah. For all we know, he might be like J. Edgar Hoover, and have a pink tutu in his closet. And you know, <laughs> who knows? We all know about what J. Edgar Hoover did years ago, and he was the biggest homophobe on the planet. And we all know that he loved Cabana boys underage, and he sexually harassed them while he was dancing around in that pink tutu. But uh, at at the same time, though, you know, what I think is interesting is these are the same ones that are trying to espouse Herschel Walker in Georgia. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and talk about Mr. Um, Mr. Walker's condition. And I haven't been doing that at all. What I've been focusing on is his words. And the fact that he doesn't even know, for instance, that he was talking during the debate that the Georgians should have the same rights as Reverend Warnock does as a senator. Well, I guess he's not up to date on something that if you are a senator, you receive federal health insurance. And yet this man is on record as being opposed to people being on federal health insurance. So I would love for him to explain that to me, you know, just like I would like for him to explain, too, since he loves to talk about abortion so much, how he wants to restrict young women, for instance, 10-year-olds who are raped. He wants to force them to carry the seed of that monster. And yet, in his own case, he certainly likes to erase his own mistakes, he does. You know, that's not the way we do things around here. And, you know, I've been taking heart from what Michael Moore has been saying. I'm, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Michael Moore's, but every now and then I like some of his work. But I will say one thing, though. I... And I also take heart of something Harry Truman once said. He said that America 
is God's country. He took a more Victorian approach to that. And I do think over time, I understand that the ideal of America, you know, the ideal of the dream itself is very sacred. Of course, the people themselves are not in, they're not uh, infallible, but the idea itself could be infallible if indeed people knew how to do it properly, you know, go from the dream to reality. And a lot of people don't know how to do that. That's the big problem here. And I think that, that's the uh, challenge. It's a big challenge, it, Stephen. It, it, it uh, is a challenge. And I think part. But I think we've had some people, though, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. I do think over the years we've had some people, particularly in the White House, uh, Kennedy comes to mind, you know, during the Kennedy administration, I think the essence of Camelot was kind of leading us down that road, you know, to where we understood the dream much more so. And the fact that the Kennedys themselves, and yes, they had flaws, we all know they did, but at the same time, the Kennedys also were a cultural religious minority in the WASP elite. And at the same time, many immigrants, not only immigrants, but I mean people of color, young people, um, you know, they saw them as hope because they understood what it was like to be different. You know what I mean? Yep. To fit in yep. and to try to accomplish something of greatness. And I think it inspired a lot of other people to get into public service back in those days, too, with the Peace Corps. And, and I, think, I, think, I think Obama inspired a lot of people, too. Stephen, I hate to cut you off, but I got to take a break. But well, I'm glad we got to... I will. I will. It's so good. It's always good to hear from you and uh, covered a lot of ground tonight. So thanks for calling in. It's always good to hear your voice. We are at the top of the hour. Uh, Big thank you to Chris and Thea, um, making it easy for me as always. Really appreciate all the calls, the tweets, everything. I love the opportunity to guest host here on SiriusXM Progress. We have the best audience, the best listeners. And I know everyone's going to stay in the fight and stay strong. And I'll talk to you again soon.